show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Experience, business, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Consumer first health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status. No. Yeah, this is the healthcare rap. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Hey, hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jared Johnson, and here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about new prescription offerings from Amazon and Optum. How will RX Pass and Price Edge provide a higher level of consumer-first health? And how can we shine a brighter spotlight on parts of the experience that can be easy to overlook from a hospital-centric lens? I'll talk about that. Then we welcome Michael Hasselberg to discuss the realities, rewards, and challenges of using technology to increase access to care. Michael is the Chief Digital Health Officer at University of Rochester Medical Center, and his work gives us a lot of insight into the ecosystem where digital health startups, consumers, and academic medicine intersect for the good of a population. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. Two new retail prescription offerings are driving the consumer-first health conversation. On January 23rd, Amazon launched RX Pass, a $5 a month prime add-on for all-you-need generic drugs covering 80 different conditions. On the same day, Optum announced Price Edge, a tool to ensure that members always get the lowest prescription drug price by comparing insurance pricing with direct-to-consumer pricing for generic drugs. Optum, which is United Health Group's pharmacy services company, shared that unlike other direct-to-consumer pharmacy solutions or cash market pricing, transactions initiated through PriceEdge count toward the member's deductible and out-of-pocket maximum. While on the Amazon side, RX Pass is not open to consumers on government medical plans like Medicare or Medicaid because Amazon Pharmacy is a provider for those and thus cannot offer it directly. The breadth and depth can kind of be staggering when you think about it. Reportedly, there are more than 150 million people in the U.S., already taking one or more of the medications in the RX Pass offering. There also happens to be about 150 million Prime members in the U.S. Coincidence? Meanwhile, Optum Health serves 101 million consumers through local medical groups and ambulatory care systems. Here's my take. Prescription drug benefits can be an important part of consumer-first health. Shopping medications is tough. I recently filled four prescriptions for a family member who underwent oral surgery. I called my direct primary care doctor who had two of them available at cost, like he always does. Literally pennies on the dollar. The other two I filled at our neighborhood CVS using good RX coupon codes. I walked away with all four prescriptions for about $14, but I recognize that I'm privileged to be able to know enough about the system to know that I can contact my DPC provider and log on to good RX. That's not the case for everybody. These new offerings also show how quickly the market's changing. I mean, it would be hard to ignore the pressure from the new kid on the block, Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company, which already has a reported customer base of 1.5 million and offers more than 350 generic drugs. When some of the biggest companies in the world are competing with an outspoken billionaire, it's the exact type of competition where consumers win. Which brings me to my point. 
Consumer First Health is absolutely about making healthcare encounters easier and less expensive. Even the parts like prescription benefits can be easy to ignore if we only look at things through a hospital-centric perspective. Prescriptions are one of the few ongoing healthcare needs for many consumers, and they're a part of a lot of doctor's visits. We need to spend more time making every part of consumer health easier. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the Week. All right, everyone, let's get into the flow again. Give it up for Michael Hasselberg, Chief Digital Officer at University of Rochester Medical Center. Welcome, Michael, to the Healthcare Wrap. Thanks, Jer, for having me. Super excited to be here today. Yeah, let's give everyone a chance to find out who is Michael here. Can you give us a quick summary of your background and anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you personally or professionally? Sure, yeah. You know, first and foremost, I'm a nurse. I'm really proud to, of, of being a nurse. I'm uh, the first in my family to go to college, the, the only one to, to go into to healthcare. After nursing school, I uh, went on to get my nurse practitioner and then a PhD and then a business degree after that. I've spent my career uh, caring for folks in uh, behavioral health. It's, it's my kind of love and, and, and passion. Well, it's great to be able to put some of those things to work, if you will, you know, put the, the passion and, and the education and the experience all together and use it in new, innovative ways. We're going to dive into a couple of those ways because I definitely want to hear how we're looking to use technology to improve access to care, especially those who aren't able to access it in other ways. It's such an important piece of the puzzle. Anytime I hear anyone talking about the consumer transformation that's happening or needs to happen, access is always like it's always part of that equation there's other parts that i kind of hear depending on if i'm talking to somebody from a health system or maybe from a retail disruptor or somebody from a different type of organization they might add other pieces to that that formula or that equation but access is always part of it so we definitely want to get into that but first and foremost i kind of want to back up a little bit and give people a chance to get to know you a little bit better here because I was attracted to this post that you shared on LinkedIn recently uh, that had to do with part of your own career trajectory here. You told a story about giving up your clinical practice in pursuit of having a larger impact. And I think the wording you used was something about being able to build new innovative care delivery models and technology. So those are things that, that drew me in right away. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so when I when I started my career as as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, I, I started off in in a in a really rural farming community. And, you know, actually a good portion of my patient population was was Mennonites. And if you needed uh, a psychiatric medication, like I was it. I was the only guy for like four Four counties uh, around me, and you know, I was I was really struck by the the lack of of care access uh, out uh, uh, in the these rural communities, and how much the these patients relied on me. You know, I ended up, you know, going back to, to school and, and finishing my, my doctorate degree. And, you know, the, the patient population that I was most passionate about was Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, talk about a, a condition 
that, you know, has poor outcomes. You know, we, we, we don't have a cure for that disease and it's a very vulnerable patient population. And I loved it. I loved my, my clinical work and, uh, you know, was, was really passionate about it. But I was still always kind of drawn back to how can I, you know, help get healthcare out to these, these rural communities. And when I came back to Rochester and I came back to the university, I was essentially tasked by, by my chair. And this was around 2009, 2010 to develop telemedicine for the department. And this was, again, if you think back to 2010, this was before telemedicine was cool, before that it was, it was reimbursed. And, you know, I had to kind of hit the ground running and thank God I was a good grant writer and I received funding to start building this telemedicine uh, infrastructure. Um, but, you know, as I was building it and as I was growing it, the patient care stuff I was doing was always always creeping into the, the administrative work and the research work I was doing. And as, as much as I loved it, you know, the models I was building, these telemedicine models were having such broader impact on so many more patients that, you know, eventually I had to get to a point where for my own personal wellness, I, I had to decide, you know, was I going to keep going clinical care? Was I going to do research? Was I going to do building new transformational models in, in the digital world? And it was a tough decision. But about three years ago, I had to move away from direct patient care. What do you think? Is there more of a need for innovation now? Or is it worth settling back to kind of the way things were done pre-pandemic? Absolutely more of a need for innovation. I mean, even before the pandemic, I mean, the the problem that I ran into with telemedicine, you know, wasn't actually reimbursement. You know, I was able to figure out, you know, how to negotiate with the payers to develop reimbursement models for the telemedicine programs that I was building. And it wasn't the the regulations. I figured out the workarounds the regula- around the regulations. It was, I couldn't graduate psychiatrists, psychologists, Psych MPs fast enough to take on more patients on the other end. And, you know, at that time, you know, what I had to do was actually pivot myself. And this was, again, before the pandemic. So I moved into the world of, you know, other technologies. I was thinking, you know, can I deliver care to patients without relying on needing a provider on the other end? So I moved into mobile apps and started partnering with the engineering faculty at my university to develop a cognitive behavioral therapy mobile app. And then I decided, you know, eh, you know, this technology needs to be more immersive and moved into VR and started developing virtual reality applications. And then, you know, became really passionate about data science and the opportunities that machine learning and artificial intelligence could bring to healthcare. And, you know, I think especially for underserved patient populations, including those living in rural communities, we're never going to have the supply of clinicians to meet those needs. And so we have to innovate. We have to think of new creative models to deliver high quality care out to these patients. And, you know, when I think about the shifts back, at least in my health system to care as usual, maybe the, you know, pre-pandemic, specifically on the telemedicine. And, you know, to me, the, the, the reason for that is 
how healthcare is reimbursed in the United States. I mean, most of us still live in this fee-for-service world where digital health and innovation, you know, potentially loses you money. And, you know, as we start moving into value-based care and health systems taking on more payer risk and payers taking on more provider networks, I think you're going to start seeing a, an upswing again of digital health technologies and innovation. Well, let's focus on that side then for a second, on the how tech innovation enables better access. What would you say to that? It sounds like there's there's going to be a need for it. So what are some of the key ways that, that technology enables better access to services just in general? Yeah, so, you know, most Americans these days have a smartphone. I mean, that that is clear, you know, that the, the research is, is out there on it. And most Americans these days rely on their cell phone for a lot of things in their lives outside of healthcare, you know, banking, going, you know, scheduling a, a restaurant uh, reservation, getting your, your transportation, you know, that is a key access point to engaging people into healthcare. And I think we saw that, especially during the first surge of the pandemic, when we were telling people, don't come to our hospitals in person. Don't come to our clinics in person. We were able to do a lot with just engaging folks on their telephone, um, both, you know, just telephonic consultations and appointments and then, you know, leveraging, you know, video components of that. Taking a step further, you know, going into SMS texting and, and digital care pathways and, and mobile apps that can be downloaded on a smartphone. There's a lot that we can do to essentially open up that digital front door in, into our health system, just leveraging that phone that everybody's relying on these days. Well, I like that. And it's probably just important as a reminder to not let us lose sight of that. I mean, you mentioned VR, for instance. I don't know what you know what experience or successes you had there or lessons learned from where that is in, it, like in its maturity model compared to being able to develop an app for a phone that people are just used to using more. Is there, can you speak to that for a moment? Uh, you know, kind of put you on the spot with VR? No, I, I love it. So, you know, I think VR is the future. I'm going to throw that out there right now. But I think we're about three years out, you know. I, you know, apps are pretty mainstream in healthcare. We're, we're not there yet in VR. But, you know, there's been a lot of strides with that technology. When Meta or uh, Facebook Reality Labs put out, you know, the Oculus One headset, to me, that was a game changer. You know, now you have this powerful device that's at a cost point that's a lot cheaper than the previous uh, VR headset. So now more people have the potential access to VR technology that no longer needs to be tethered to a computer. When that happened, when that specific headset came out, that was when my innovation group really heavily you know, put effort into developing VR applications. And you know, we have in the hospital deployed VR headsets in our children's hospital. We're using them up and our, our pre-op uh, prior to patients going to surgery. We're using them in, in dentistry. We're doing, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy on, on VR headsets. There's a lot of opportunities to be had there. You know, one of the cool things that we're really proud of is our signal processing engineers uh, at our university actually hacked into those headsets. And just using those sensors and those headsets, we were able to extract the signals of 
a patient's heart rate and respiration rate just from the headset alone. Now, imagine the next step of where VR goes, that I can actually potentially adjust the reality that someone is in while they're in that headset based off of their own biometrics to create a therapeutic response. I mean, that's super, super exciting and and potentially really, really powerful. So yeah, I'm excited about the the potential for VR. I think it will take telemedicine to a whole nother level, but we're still a few years out uh, from that uh, technology being mainstream. Well, I like that. I like the the thought that that's not a 10 to 20 year window. Uh, you know, a three to five year window sure sounds a lot more uh, impactful, if you will, in the long term for that to be here sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'll give you a, a really good example where the technology is not there yet. So, you know, first surge of pandemic hits. And, you know, I am very lucky at the University of Rochester to have a, a true innovation incubator where under one roof I have engineers and computer scientists and data scientists and school of music faculty and business faculty under the same physical roof as faculty from the medical school, dental school, and nursing school. And, you know, this group does several things. We serve as a venture studio and we onboard early stage startups uh, into our healthcare ecosystem, but we also develop technology. And we use a lot of design thinking methodologies, human-centered design, or very agile group. And that those types of methodologies typically require impromptu, in-person interactions. And when we all had to go remote, it was really hard to do that design thinking. And so what we did was like we sent our whole team, well, not the whole team, about 20 of our team members home with VR headsets. And we thought, you know what, we're going we're gonna to do our design thinking sessions uh, in VR because it's going to be more immersive. We're going to be able to get a whole lot more accomplished. It was fun. We were throwing popcorn at each other in a VR environment or taking markers and writing on each other's faces, but we weren't overly productive in doing our healthcare innovation, working remotely in VR. But you could see, you could see the potential of where that technology could go in the future. I love it. I love it. Well, tell me a little bit about your role and what is a chief digital health officer's role in particular, in the process of improving access. You know, my role is new to our health system. It uh, uh, was introduced right after COVID. And, you know, why it got introduced was, you know, prior to COVID, all of my experience in telehealth. And when COVID hits, like every health system in the country, we had to turn on telehealth for everybody in like a day. And the CEO of the, the system tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, can you help us turn on telehealth for the system was able to do that. And six months in, we realized, you know, this isn't going away in terms of COVID. We need to digitalize a lot of what we do in the health system, but we had no strategy. We had no priority of what to do first, what to do second. And essentially, everybody was raising their hand, all the departments, we need this, we need that. And we were just saying yes to everything, but weren't getting anything accomplished. And so I was asked to take on this role of chief digital health officer to essentially develop our digital transformation strategy for the health system. For everything from, you know, how do we increase our patient portal penetration to online scheduling, 
marketing to on-demand telemedicine and retail healthcare through kind of patient engagement and digital care pathways and digital education and mobile applications, all the way to becoming a smart health system where we're using machine learning and artificial intelligence to do precision medicine and risk stratify our patients to the right level of care at the right time and in the right place. And so in that role, you know, it's a very high level strategy and, you know, keeping an eye on what's happening across the country from a market standpoint, what's happening in our local markets and making sure that my boss and the executive team is, is kind of well aware of the market changes and how we can stay ahead of them. And my other kind of half of my role is, you know, co-leading the innovation arm to the health system, that kind of innovation incubator. Again, you know, digital health and innovation is set up to be really successful in value-based care. You know, my health system is, is not there yet, but investing in this new position, investing in innovation, investing in the digital transformation strategy is a huge leap forward to my health system moving to, to value-based care. And when you think about value-based care and population health, it's less about keeping our hospital at 110% occupancy or keeping our emergency department cranking out patients or keeping my surgeon seeing patients in person and doing high cost cuts and procedures. It's focused on chronic disease management. It's focused on primary care. It's focused on behavioral health. And it's really focused on keeping patients out of the hospital, in their own communities, in their own homes. And the KPI is how many days do I stay healthy and enjoy life in my home? Those are the things that we're going to focus on. And so, again, I kind of look at my role as Chief Digital Health Officer as also a proxy role of helping my health system get to value-based care and setting our foundation to be successful of meeting patients in their own communities. I understand part of that role is is working with early stage digital health startups. I'm curious if you see any startups out there that are specifically trying to improve the consumer experience and how I'd define that as anywhere that we're trying to make the experience easier as anyone encounters the healthcare system. So not just the patient experience, but it could be part of that. It could be digital tools that that improve the experience while you're actively seeing a provider. I mean, access really is a big part of that. But are you seeing any digital health startups in particular that are focused on, on things like that? Or are they more focused still on clinical workflows and like digital therapeutics? What, what are you seeing? You know, it's a lot of diversity, I think, in the digital health startup space. And especially, you know, after, you know, what happened with the market and in 2020 and going into 2021 where you know folks were getting big valuations with just just having an idea and there was kind of a enormous amount of startups kind of popping up in the space and in various different uh, areas you know i think you know yeah there's a good percentage of startups that are really focused on the consumer and you know really kind of taking advantage that traditionally the consumer experience in healthcare has been absolutely terrible. And, you know, how can we, you know, create a better experience leveraging technology? So I think, you know, you've got a 
good portion of of startups in that space. And I I would describe that space is that digital front door moving into that digital kind of patient engagement side. And then, you know, I see, you know, another group of startups that, you know, is really focused in on, you know, automation and, and optimization of, you know, the current, you know, healthcare system. And that could be in the rep revenue cycle space. You know, that could be just in the, the provider kind of automation space, uh, clinician automation space space, which is definitely a hot topic and a hot space to be in right now, given the current labor workforce crisis that that healthcare is in. And then, you know, I think you have another group of startups that are really more heavy on the machine learning space and, you know, data aggregation space. You know, how can we leverage data to create more precision medicine models. And I think you've, you've got a kind of a group over focus there. Nice, nice. Well, I'll tell you what, let's try a little bit of something new here. I haven't done this much, but a bit of a rapid fire segment. I think we've done it a couple of times over the last couple of years, but there are quite a few LinkedIn posts you've put out there recently. And I wonder if we can just do like a, a little rapid fire way through these. There's a few of them and I'll just give you the topic, but if you just want to summarize your post or any thoughts on it that you're trying to express there, we'll just roll right through these if that works. I love it. Let's do it. All right. All right. And in no particular order, here we go. Uh, number one was your thoughts on the GE healthcare spinoff. Oh, I, you know, super excited. You know, one of the things that I really love about GE is they take a, uh, in my opinion, a team approach uh, to healthcare. And they're very open as a, a large company to partner, you know, with smaller third party companies, partner with other, you know, big publicly traded companies and partner with health systems. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was, you know, really cool about uh, GE was when they put together their their board for GE Healthcare, you know, they put on their board CEOs of some of our leading health systems in the country. So they're clearly, you know, want to, to partner and get the lens of, of health systems. And the other thing that I like is their approach to moving towards data and, you know, trying to have almost like an open source data layer where it's easy for third party vendors outside of GE to kind of plug in, but also for health systems to plug into. So that, you know, kind of open source to interoperability ecosystem really, really excites me. And you don't, you don't see that from, from a lot of companies. So I'm excited about, you know, where GE can go in this, this space. We already knew they were leaders in the medical device side, but, you know, as they shift into more data, Data and personalization, partnering with others, taking that team approach, it could have some really big wins for healthcare. Excellent. All right. Uh, the next one is the future of remote patient monitoring. Oh, uh, you know, I'm, uh, if anyone's ever heard me speak on remote patient monitoring, I can be pretty bullish uh, on RPM. You know, I, you know I, I'm not sure about remote patient monitoring, to be frank, because it's, a, it's an area on the tech side that's just changing so rapidly. Like, I don't see the future of RPM being peripherals, to be frank. I don't see it being Bluetooth scales or blood pressure cuffs uh, in the home. I don't see it even being Apple Watch 
watches or Fitbits collecting data. I see it's going total non-peripheral. I see the future and the technology in this space being the leveraging of computer vision and you know using that smartphone device that we started talking about at the beginning of this session to collect vital signs. We know that there are startups in this space that can use computer vision and just use that camera on the phone to capture all your vital signs. So, you know, I'm just thinking that peripherals are just going to be potentially in the future kind of cut right out. The other thing that, you know, I struggle with RPM, you know, I, I get it. The idea of monitoring your patients in the home, in their own communities could have really powerful healthcare impacts to it. The issue is, is like, Thus far, folks have really struggled to make sense of RPM data. And when that continuous data flows back to the clinician on the other end, I hear more often than not from my clinicians, I don't know what to do with all this data. Stop sending me this data. And they're resistant to, to remote patient monitoring. So I think the potential is there. And I think the future is going to go away from peripherals as machine learning gets more sophisticated on the computer vision side. And I think as we start to understand, you know, what that continuous biometric data really does mean within the context of a patient, that's where we're going to see the impact. And where I put on my post is, you know, I think the future of RPM is going to be linking that biometric data to patients' own voice, patients' own patient-reported outcomes, and you know, hearing from them in the moment when you're capturing that signal of the, or their profile of their biometrics, how are they feeling through their own lens? And when you kind of merge those two data sets together, I think that's where we're going to unlock the, the, the power of RPM. Excellent. All right, next one is telebehavioral health integrations into rural hospitals. Yeah, we have a supply-demand issue in behavioral health. The demand is always going to be higher than the supply. And as I said, I started my career in small, you know, rural communities. And without having a me in this small rural community where I served all of the counties around me, patients go to the emergency department and they go to their the small community hospital to receive their behavioral health care. In most cases, the sad thing is, is when they arrive, there isn't a behavioral health provider there to give them the care that they need. And so the way the system has been typically has worked in the past is that patient then gets sent in an ambulance 90 miles away, 100 miles away to the closest quaternary hospital or tertiary hospital where there are behavioral health providers. And the majority of those patients, they get to the hospital, they don't meet criteria for inpatient psychiatry, they get discharged, sent back to their small rural community without any follow-up services uh, scheduled for them because they're not there. And so that post was really about a care model that we built in Rochester that was able to take a small group where I didn't need a lot of psychiatrists, but partnering a psychiatrist with a psychiatric nurse that we could tell a bring psychiatric services into small community hospitals. And, you know, we could help create care plans and make the determination remotely whether or not a patient needed to be transferred for inpatient psychiatry or not. And essentially what we then did is we just created better care for these patients. And the majority of the patients, we were able to set them up with the resources that they needed in their own community without being sent 90 miles away. 
Ah, it's so cool. I mean, we're talking about access. Okay, but wait, this is rapid fire. I won't give my commentary here, <laughs> but I'm really excited about that one. The last one, last one, is transforming healthcare to meet the patient-centered imperative. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was a, around a post that I put around an article that I had wrote for a magazine several years ago around, you know, fast following Amazon into healthcare, where, you know, it was actually before Amazon really dipped their toes into Amazon Care, which we all know is now Amazon Clinic, which they we now know they acquired one medical, but was really focused on Amazon, you know, and their transformation that they did into retail and, you know, how they totally disrupted the book industry, which then went beyond the book industry into e-commerce in general, and how Amazon did that by really understanding their consumers, really understanding the consumer from consumer data to the point where, you know, Amazon now, if you go on to Prime, right, you know, and you're looking for something, they're going to recommend potential products to you, you know, probably before you even know you want the product and more likely than not, you're going to purchase that product. And so that post was really to talking about how in healthcare we can collect better data on our patients to profile them, kind of fast follow what Amazon did of kind of transforming that retail front door, leveraging data to match them with the right product at the right time. How can we do the same thing in healthcare, collect better data, create that digital front door in, and then match them to the right level of care at the right time in the right place, even potentially before the patient knows they need that level of care. And so that was really what that that post was uh, reflecting on, was that past article. And we all know, you know, where retail and Amazon and others have now started, you know, aggressively investing into the healthcare space. I love it. Well, guess what? That'll do it for this episode. I just want to thank you again. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Michael Hasselberg. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jared. This was a a ton of fun. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.